Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today I'm going to be telling you guys part one about the murder of Marilyn Shepard. Today I am, well, right now I'm not drinking coffee. I am drinking some coconut water mixed with cranberry juice, which is very yummy. And I know that the pink drink from Starbucks technically uses strawberry and coconut milk, but this is a nice substitute that's not a lot of calories that I discovered because I don't drink enough vitamin C and it's fantastic. So 10 out of 10 recommend. And I have something a little different than what I was recording or what I was drinking when we recorded earlier, but I have espresso with a little bit of French vanilla creamer and a ghost. I just remembered because I am still ready for fall. What did you remember? I just remembered I have matcha in the fridge. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> so grab whatever you're drinking and let's dive on in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for a Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Samuel Holmes Shepard was born December 29th, 1923. He was the son of a physician, Dr. Richard Shepard of Cleveland, Ohio. Samuel, who went by Sam, was an all-American boy. He played sports. He was class president in high school. He had amazing grades. And he was offered actually a few athletic scholarships, but decided that he wanted to become a doctor like his father. And so he ended up going to Hanover College in our home state, Indiana. And then he went on to attend Los Angeles. And then he went on to attend Los Angeles Osteopathic School of Physicians and Surgeons, which is now renamed to the University of California, Irvine, which, by the way, is so much easier to say. (laughs) I was going to say, I was very impressed that you got that within like two tries of trying to say it because we would have been here all day if it was me. (laughs) Osteopathic, that thing? Yeah. So... He ended up completing his internship and residency in neurosurgery at the General Hospital in L.A. County. And then he ended up moving back to Ohio. Throughout this whole time, he is dating a woman named Marilyn Reese Shepard, who was initially born in Cleveland, Ohio. When Marilyn was just a young girl, her mom did end up dying. And so she was solely raised by her father, Thomas Reese. Like I had mentioned, Marilyn and... Sam had started dating when they were younger and Marilyn ended up moving with Sam out to California while he was attending school. And then the two ended up getting married in 1945. A few years after the wedding, they moved back to Cleveland, Ohio, and Sam joined his father's practice. In 1947, the two welcomed a son named Samuel Reese Shepard, who they nicknamed Chip. They ended up settling in Bay Village, Ohio, which is near Cleveland and just along the shore of Lake Erie. On July 3rd, 1954, in the evening, Sam and Marilyn had a bunch of guests over. They had been eating dinner together and then decided to 
sit in the living room and watch the movie Strange Holiday. While they're watching the movie, Sam gets really tired. And so he decides that he's going to go and lay on the daybed that they have downstairs. And as soon as he lays down, he falls right asleep. Marilyn stayed up with their guests for a while and entertained them. Their son, Chip, was already in bed at this time, so everything was good. They were just enjoying their time together. Eventually, as the night went on, the guests decided that they were going to leave. They said goodnight to Marilyn and left, and Marilyn went upstairs to her and Sam's bedroom and went to sleep, with Sam still asleep downstairs. She just left him down there because he was tired. The next morning, around 5.40 a.m., Spencer Hook, the mayor of Bay Village at the time, received a phone call from friend and nearby neighbor, Sam Shepard. When he answered the phone, he could hear Sam yelling, going, My God, Spence, get over here quick. I think they have killed Marilyn. Spencer woke his wife, Esther, up. They quickly got dressed and dashed out the door and drove just a short distance down to Sam's residence. And when they got there, they came inside and found Dr. Shepard in his den, sitting in a swivel chair and holding his neck. They also could tell that he had water-soaked pants and a bloody knee. So they ask him what happened, and Sam proceeds to tell them this story. He said that he was asleep downstairs on the daybed when he heard Marilyn shout Sam and start to scream. And so he raced up the stairs to their bedroom and he said he didn't really turn on any lights, but he could see a white, a quote unquote white form standing next to his wife's bed. And so he ran in there and tried to fight with this person, but he ended up being hit on the back of his neck and he lost consciousness. I will say something that I hadn't already pointed out. So in their bedroom, they had two separate twin beds. And so one bed was Marilyn's bed and one bed was Sam's bed. And so uh, this was all taking place next to Marilyn's bed. Shortly after, Sam came to, took Marilyn's pulse and determined that she was dead. He went and checked on their son really quick because his room was next door, made sure that his son was sleeping, was totally fine. So he took off down the stairs. And when he did, he saw the quote-unquote white form again, but it was running out the back door toward Lake Erie. So Sam decides he's going to chase this figure out to figure out what's going on. And so he runs down the stairs towards the lake and battles with this guy, with this individual. He said he couldn't determine if it was male or female. So he's wrestling with them. He was able to describe it a little bit farther from a white form as a bushy-haired white form. It's about as far as we get. So he said that he, like, lunged after can we talk about how weird it is that he's just saying white form like can't he just say person (laughs) (laughs) i would agree i would agree i don't know if he was confused or what i don't know like he just he kept calling it a form i don't know if he was trying to play like a, a ghost story well yeah i'll be honest when you first said white form I was like, oh, is he going to say like he saw like a ghost or seen things? And then you're like, well, he ran into the room and started to fight with him. And I was like, okay, so not a ghost, maybe. (laughs) No, but this is what he supposedly saw. So Sam says that once he's on the beach, he lunges after this white form, excuse me, bushy haired white form and could feel himself being like choked. And he lost consciousness again. When he woke back up, he was wet and his shirt and watch were gone, which is when he ran back into the house to call the mayor. There's so many weird things here. 
one, it just sounds like he, I don't know. I'm not even going to touch that. Never mind. I'll just jump to this other thing. Why do you call the mayor and not 911 right away? Okay. Great question. No answer. Oh. Well, so great question. I initially heard about this case on BuzzFeed Unsolved. If you guys haven't watched that series, it's great. It's on YouTube. It's no longer the same. I guess they kind of changed it. But anyways, Shane and Ryan were presenting it. And Ryan was telling the story. And the very first thing Shane says is he's like, wait, the mayor? What happened to 911? Which is a fantastic question. So I thought it was funny that you that was also where you went. I, I don't know. They were good friends, I guess. I It depends on how you want to spin it, right? Like if you think that the doctor is suspicious at this point, maybe he called the mayor to give himself a little more time, right? If you think that he's innocent, then you could kind of chalk it up to the fact that he lost consciousness. So he was probably a little bit dazed and confused and wasn't thinking straight in that moment. You could also, I mean, he may have just, maybe there wasn't police officers in 1954 in Ohio. Obviously joking, but I don't have a great answer. Abby's brain is thinking. Okay. His pants were wet. (laughs) So are we assuming that he like was partially in the lake or something because well that's where they were fighting was down by the lake okay so that's maybe where the they second fight like, took got place. into the lake yes i didn't realize that it was like potentially in the lake too All i right. guess i don't know it seems so weird but i'm just gonna skirt past it and let you tell the story okay sounds great so eventually the police are called and they arrive and they get there and they start talking to the doctor And they're like, tell us what happened. And so the details that I just gave you are the extent of the details that he would give. Like, he didn't have anything else. He was like, "I there could have been multiple intruders in the bedroom. And I only saw the one. I don't even know the sex of it. Like, it was just a form. It could have been a male or a female or I don't know. But, like, he literally couldn't give complexion, hair color, height, weight. It was a white form bushy haired white form maybe that's coming to if he's actually experiencing head trauma twice maybe it's like a loss of memory kind of thing so i'll give him that and that's what he said i mean he's a neurosurgeon right so he's obviously pretty familiar with the way that the brain works hopefully anyways and so he's he he does say you know i probably don't remember it because i've been knocked out like i've lost consciousness at about 6 a.m a police officer named Fred Drinken arrives and he's one of the first officers on the scene but he when he gets there finds Marilyn's body laying face up in her bed with her face turned toward the door her pajamas are all messed up exposing her they're still on her a little bit but like her top was pulled up exposing her breasts her one pajama bottom was removed from one leg and like pulled all the way off to the side like Things that you would see that were very typical in like a sexual assault rape situation. Her face was unrecognizable. She had been stabbed and cut at least 25 times in her face and scalp. And there was blood everywhere on the bed, on the walls, on the closet doors. And I have this in my notes. I'm assuming you don't need me to say it. However, Marilyn was pronounced dead at the scene. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. When detectives arrive at the scene, the coroner had already removed Marilyn's body and Dr. Shepard was at the hospital for his own injuries. So keep that in mind because now detectives can't really investigate the scene without it already being contaminated by the body being moved and they don't really have the doctor there to ask questions to. The coroner does perform an autopsy on Marilyn and what the autopsy revealed is that she had suffered multiple blows to the head that included communated fractures of the skull, separation of the frontal structure, bilateral subdural hematomas, diffuse subarachnoid hemorrhage, contusions to the brain, multiple lacerations of the forehead and scalp, fractures of multiple teeth, and a fracture of this nose. That's a lot of big words. I tried my best to say them all. I'm not a doctor, but uh, basically everything was focused on the face. There was a lot of blunt force trauma and hits and stabs directly to the face area. Additionally, her lungs showed that she had aspirated on her own blood. And the autopsy also showed that she was actually pregnant with a four-month-old son. I, from what it sounded like, Marilyn and Sam did not know that she was pregnant at the time. It kind of sounded like that was a surprise. The autopsy would later determine her time of death as 4.30 a.m. Doc calls the mayor at 5.40 a.m., right? Yes. I mean, I guess if we're assuming he was, like, knocked out. It's weird to me that if he was knocked out the first time, like, he came to and the person was still around, the timing definitely seems a little suspicious. Yes, because per Sam's story, he woke up to Marilyn screaming for him. So in theory, he would have woken up around 4.30 a.m. And an hour and 10 minutes later is when the mayor receives a phone call from him. Like you said, he supposedly lost consciousness twice. The first time, in theory, wasn't for a long period of time because he woke up, checked on his wife, like checked her pulse, found she was dead, checked on her son or on their son to make sure he was alive and then went downstairs and the killer was still there. So in theory, that had to be pretty quick unless the killer was just hanging out for the fun of it. And then he lost consciousness again on the beach. It's not known for exactly how long, but that 70 minutes is quite a long time that's unaccounted for. The other unfortunate thing with the way that this autopsy was handled was the coroner decided not to do any testing or swabbing to determine if sexual assault or rape had occurred. That seems like a bad move. Well, exactly. Like, there's, it's seemingly pretty obvious that something occurred. She's basically naked by the time that they find her body. And they decide not to do any testing to see if there's any DNA or anything that they could get from that. Find it interesting and kind of negligent. My, like, initial concern is that there's a lot of prominent people in this small community that are involved and it's seeming weird. You know, he calls the mayor instead of the police department. All of a sudden, coroner's not doing the stuff you would expect him to do in this kind of situation. You could see how some people could draw a conclusion that there is some type of bigger conspiracy going on to hide something. Absolutely, and I think that that's kind of the thought process that a lot of people in the community were probably having at this time. There's things that are not being handled appropriately. So as I had mentioned, Dr. Shepard is at the hospital being treated for his injuries. And they end up determining that he has a fractured neck, a concussion, 
and nerve damage to the left side of his body. Well, that's at least consistent with his story. Yes. So despite this, he's still able to talk with police, give a statement. He says that he was in and out of consciousness. I mean, he gives all of that. He says that his memory's a little funky. He said that he like checked his wife's pulse, realized she was dead, chased the suspect to the beach, knocked out again. When he woke up, things were missing. So he tells the police the same story that he told the mayor. So at least he's being consistent and his injuries are currently consistent with the experience that he's claiming to have had. So so that detective, Fred Drinken, continues to investigate the house. At this point, there are minimal things that they can look for because the body's already gone. The doctor's gone. Like, there's less things to look for. But he does find evidence of either a robbery or a staged robbery. He does note that it could be staged. He finds the doctor's black medical bag in the hallway with the contents spilled out all over the floor. Some of those contents were missing. However, they were later found outside the home in some bushes, so nobody actually took them. There was also a track trophy of Sam's and a bowling trophy of Marilyn's that were broken on the floor that like had been thrown. Do they know what the murder weapon was? Not officially. The only thing that they were able to kind of contribute it to is that it could possibly be a surgical instrument is what they said, but they didn't know what kind of surgical instrument it was. That's what I was just kind of wondering with his medical bag being open and some of the stuff outside if maybe it was one of those items were the murder weapon. I mean, that's most likely where it came from. Whether or not it was Dr. Shepard or another individual that did it, that's for us to find out as we go along. During the search, the detective, Fred Drinken, also discovered that the drawers of Dr. Shepard's desk was open in a weird way, but nothing seemed to be missing from it, like noticeably. Something that I find interesting is the amount we already talked about the amount of prevalent people that were involved in this but it it gets bigger so police are doing their investigation and Odo Graham who was an NFL quarterback for the Cleveland Browns decides to stop by because he's a neighbor of the Shepherds and so he decides to stop by and his wife Beverly also stops by she was a good friend of Marilyn's So that kind of made sense. But they kind of stopped by and just like see what's going on. And even though they hadn't officially secured the crime scene, they allowed Odo to like come into Marilyn's bedroom and look around, which this is the 50s. And it feels like a early 1900s, 1800s kind of mistake to just let some stranger into the bedroom to look around. Agreed. That seems kind of weird. Either way, they did it. And then Odo ends up going on and talking with some press and stuff and he quoted it and he was quoted saying oh my god it looks like someone stood in the middle of the room with a great big can of red paint and a brush and flicked it all around this wasn't a couple of blows whoever did it they had to be out of their mind end quote which i thought was a really interesting thing to just be quoted for but thought i'd put it in there the county coroner sam gerber and i believe This is the same coroner that initially took Marilyn's body, but I could be wrong because I never found an actual name of the one that took the body. But he comes to the house and he's talking with the with Officer Drenkin and getting his report of the investigation. And as he's listening, he starts to become very suspicious of Dr. Shepard. And he's like the way his account of these events does not make sense. 
the robbery things looked incredibly staged because it doesn't appear that anything's missing. Things are just kind of like thrown around and busted, but it doesn't appear that it's actually gone. There didn't appear to be any sort of forced entry. And so he was like, I think it's probably just like a domestic homicide. And so because he made this assumption right from the get-go of coming into the built or into the house, he made minimal effort to recover fingerprint and blood evidence because he was like, well, it must be the doctor that did it. Which like is insane because you still could be finding evidence that would connect him to that murder. Well, that's the thing. Like there that's still important. And Mm -hmm. the evidence, whether or not it goes along with your theory, needs to be explored because you can't just put innocent people in jail and you you shouldn't be able to put just innocent people in jail and go to sleep at night. We see it frequently. But he came in with this preconceived notion that he knew who did it. And at this point, he was just trying to fit his story. The coroner, Sam Gerber, I'm going to just call him Gerber because there's two Sams. So Gerber goes to the hospital and starts talking with the doctor, Shepard, and he interviews him for 10 minutes And then he takes all the stuff, his shoes, his belt, his boxers, his pants, and everything. And he goes and investigates it. And he sees the large blood stain on the left knee that I told you about. And he's like, it looks like he knelt in blood. So he tells the doctor that it is incredibly obvious that the doctor did it. And so he tells these two detectives to go to the hospital and talk to Dr. Shepard and get a confession out of him. So the two detectives, they were young detectives. They were new. So they do as they're told and they go over there and they try to get a story, the confession out of Dr. Shepard. But Dr. Shepard continues to stick to a story. He's like, I did not do it. I loved Marilyn. It wasn't me. Stop accusing me kind of thing. And apparently one of the detectives said, quote, I don't know about my partner, but I think you killed your wife, end quote, which just seems really aggressive. I get that they're probably probably trying to play like good cop, bad cop kind of situation or whatever. But this guy's wife just died. He's clearly injured. Like, it's hard for you to fake injury. Like, he can't fake those injuries. So unless he purposefully injured himself that much just for the fun of it, like something happened. They tried to get Sam to take a polygraph test. He refuses. And for him. Yeah. And throughout the day, he ends up having a few guests come by so once again that football player that nfl quarterback odo graham stops by and sees him and then cleveland's most famous criminal defense attorney bill corrigan also stops by to see him so he's getting a lot of people some people immediately telling him that he's guilty and some people that are willing to hear his story and and figure out what actually could have happened that night all right so that's all that i have for you today come back next week to find out more information about what could have happened with dr shepherd what actually happened to Marilyn the night of her murder. And fair warning, there's quite a bit of chaos that we're about to get into. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.